ladies and gentlemen and dogs that might be listening, maybe cats as well. Uh, I feel like everybody that I talk to these days, like our dogs become friends too on the internet. Sick. Um, <laughs> so today, I think I have uh, not only one of this, I mean, we just talked for like five minutes beforehand and I've decided that uh, today's guest Cody is, uh, I, I feel like we're like, we're like soul brothers uh, in the way that we think about training and pain and all of this stuff. Uh, but he also has the coolest last name. Um, so today we have Cody Miseraka. I love, it's like the coolest last name ever. Um, <laughs> we have him coming on. And so Cody is a, a physical therapist and strength coach in San Diego, California. He works with patients and clients ranging from the acute hospital setting to outpatient orthopedic and sports rehabilitation and then all the way to general strength and conditioning through his business, Waypoint Strength and Performance. One of his primary motivations is to facilitate return to meaningful exercise and physical activity. Cody, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm so excited for today. You have a cool last name. I love the way you think about stuff. It's going to be a good episode. So talk me through this journey and like, talk to me about like who you are. Like, how, how did you become somebody who in my opinion, thinks about paying the right way. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's been kind of a journey for me. So I, I'm a physical therapist in San Diego, like you said. Um, I went to PT school in Minnesota as well as undergrad. Um, and I would say probably my journey started there um, in undergrad. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to go into physical therapy initially. Um, I was actually going to be a registered dietitian. I was going through the dietetics program. Um, just kind of as we got into more of the clinical type stuff, I didn't love the idea of it as much. Wanted to get into something a little more exercise related. Um, I ended up changing majors to kinesiology and then worked for a couple years as an athletic medicine intern for the football program there. Um, and that's where I kind of had exposure to athletic training primarily. They didn't have a physical therapist on staff. But I realized that I really liked the idea of helping people with like physically active goals, getting back to that. And obviously like division one football is really high level, but I was starting to realize at the time that a lot of the concepts kind of apply across the board, especially as I started shadowing uh, other physical therapists in outpatient settings, inpatient settings, kind of just connecting dots and realizing that a lot of these concepts kind of you know, they apply across the board. And I think for us now looking at it, that makes sense because, you know, we recognize, hey, human beings are human beings. Um, you know, different people are going to have different variations in their genetics and their abilities and their upbringing and all of that. But uh, these concepts tend to apply. Um, so I went to PT school in Minnesota at St. Catherine University and then worked in Minnesota real briefly after graduation and then moved to San Diego. Um, and initially I was really lucky when I got here. My first job was in a cash-based private practice, working almost exclusively with barbell athletes, weightlifting, powerlifting, CrossFit. Um, the company I worked for was based out of a CrossFit gym, essentially. Um, and they had a really strong tie to law enforcement and the uh, you know, like Navy and stuff here. So got to have an awesome exposure to kind of the higher end of, of performance in that regard. Um, got to have the opportunity working for them, uh, doing like strength coaching for a 
workplace wellness program that we actually uh, implemented within the Navy itself. Um, so that was really cool. So that was kind of my first foray into doing just regular strength coaching on the side of rehabilitation. And I kind of continued to connect some dots and, and start to recognize that, you know, again, a lot of these concepts seem to apply across the board. Um, you know, concepts of strength and conditioning and rehabilitation aren't really all that different. And that's when I started to kind of think about all of this as being kind of on a continuum of load. So you might hear people talk about the rehab training continuum um, and how it's just like a, it's a continuum. They're not two different things. They just exist on a continuum of load and you kind of slide up and down this continuum. Um, so did that for a while and then eventually moved over to my current position full-time working for a hospital system here, outpatient sports and orthopedics. Um, currently during uh, these times, um, I'm not working in outpatient. The, the clinic is currently not fully operational. So I've been working in the hospital a lot lately and we were doing a bit of that anyways. Um, so that kind of brings us up to speed for where I'm at now. Oh, and then I guess, yes, Waypoint Strength and Conditioning. That's a, a business that I've been running for the last year or so. Um, once I switched over to the outpatient side of things, uh, working for the hospital system, I kind of missed doing coaching um, and I kind of recognized a need for um, kind of filling this, this gap that I don't think should be there between rehabilitation and just regular exercise. Um, I feel like a lot of people got kind of go through rehab or phys physical therapy and they kind of get to the end of it and they haven't been reintroduced to the things they wanted to be doing especially if they have higher level physical activity goals. Um, so there's a gap. And so I kind of saw the need for filling the gap. Um, so that's kind of where my business came in. Um, so sorry for the 10 minute ramble, but no, that's me. That's awesome. And, and I think like, it's cool. It's, I mean, it's amazing that you had that experience of getting to, to go in and work with uh, these, I mean, D one athletes, like we have, we have some NFL players that, uh, train out of the gym that I work at and like literally, you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll, maybe I'll deadlift a bunch of weight or I'll, I'll hit a big squat. And then like later on in the day, they're, you know, doing bounds on like a, you know, 40 yard stretch of turf, but they do the bounds. They do the whole thing of turf and like five, you know, or it's like three jumps. And I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm not athletic. Like I thought I was athletic, but I'm not athletic. Like you said, there's so much stuff that goes into being that type of person, but you can also learn a lot. And, and I think the interesting thing is the fact that you said that you were like connecting these dots as you were going, like how much, how much would you say was, was being connected for you? Like how much of it was you were learning something in school and then during the clinicals you were like, Oh yeah, I can see how this is working. And then how much of it. And I would, I would assume just to be totally honest with you, like a lot of it was you kind of connecting it yourself and saying, wait, they told me this stuff. Uh, when I was uh, in school, but it seems like a lot of the strength and conditioning stuff is actually doing the exact same thing, if not even better than, uh, you know, holding a band and doing some external rotations, you know, whatever, whatever it might be like, yeah. how is, how did that work? Uh, so it's actually kind of funny. I was reflecting on this not too long ago. Um, I started having these ideas about how, um, you know, the human body is, is designed for movement and, you know, engaging actively in the world and movement and load is like the language of the musculoskeletal system. Um, and I started like recognizing this just kind of by paying attention to what we were doing when I was working as a, an intern for uh, the University of Minnesota uh, doing athletic medicine. Um, and so at that time, I started thinking about how, oh, you know, like musculoskeletal injuries, like what we need to be doing is 
dosing load appropriately to the tissue to to facilitate healing you know working in that sort of setting you see a lot of you know like acute musculoskeletal it like injuries like muscle tears and stuff like that um and so it's kind of starting to develop that framework it's kind of funny i think it actually took a bit of a step back when i was in pt school um and i think this is maybe a, uh, a problem kind of across the board in pt programs is there tends to be a a really heavy emphasis on kind of more of the passive interventions, partially because our boards test for them. Um, and partially there's just a, a really, a really heavy, uh, desire for like, uh, kind of passive hands-on manual type therapies. And so especially my program just put a big emphasis on that. And I think I kind of, kind of forgot about what I had been thinking about in terms of load management. Uh, prior to PT school. And then after I got out of PT school and started my first job, I got connected with some awesome clinicians via the clinical athlete forum and started kind of getting back on board and continuing to develop. And, you know, you, you learn things in school. Um, you know, you kind of think you have it all figured out and then, you know, have your beliefs challenged by, uh, by people that are, you know, much, much more intelligent than me. So um, I kind of got back on track with that, I think, after school. I think you just described what it's like for me to do the podcast. Uh, basically, when I talk to people, my beliefs are just constantly challenged, uh, and I'm just learning new things. Like I, that's the best part for me. Is like it's the same thing for you with clinical athletes. As I just talk to people, I'm like, oh my god, I'm learning so much. Like I like when I'm talking to you, and and like when you just said that like load is the the language of the musculoskeletal uh, system. I was like, that was that's art. That was like poetry to me. I was like, that's the most beautiful thing. Um, and then like we were talking about reading John Kiley at first, we're like, Oh my gosh, there's so many cool things and so many smart people out there. So when, when, when you're kind of thinking about this stuff, like what I think is, is interesting, um, is like you reference how it's like a continuum of there's really no, or there should be very little gap between like rehab and training. And it's just a a load continuum, which I think I I love that. And and it's really brilliant, but, uh, for, for me, like the one thing that I've, I've found is even as a personal trainer, not a physical therapist training for people for 10 years, the one thing that I've seen a lot of is like, it's almost the opposite in that a lot of people come in, uh, as a personal trainer and they understand the basics of, I mean, really like personal training certifications don't prepare you too much. So like, this is basic anatomy and physiology and how to do a VO2 max test. And then you train somebody and you're like, I don't know how to apply this. And, uh, and so a lot of people fall into more passive and, and almost going as if they were doing like the, what you learn in PT school and going rather than trying to figure out how to apply load for people who are rehabbing injuries or have previous injury history. I'm going to think more about smashing, mashing, breathing positions, uh, you know, manually stretching them uh and so from the sound of it you, in your eyes it's something where it should be less of that like if you're a coach even if you're not a clinician in a non-clinical setting worry less about how do i you know manipulate somebody's body into a position and more about how do i give them a dose of of load you know get that dose response so that they can get stronger and honestly, like maybe even on a psychological level, feel more confident doing certain things. Like how does that work for you? Because I think it's a huge issue that I see like for trainers is like, 
I see people and they're like talking to clients about things and I'm like, you're, you're not a physical therapist, but you're like saying that you're breaking up adhesions with this thing. I feel like there's some disconnect. Like you're saying things you learn on the internet, which is a really big problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I want to like, you know, start off by saying I'm, I'm certain that 99% of people that do those sorts of things, you know, they have, they have the best intentions for the people they're working with and they want to do the best they can. Um, I think that, you know, obviously there's just a lot of kind of mixed information and misinformation out there and, you know, maybe a, a culture of, you know, wanting to collect certifications and, you know, have those letters behind your name and, you know, um, feeling like you always have like the next big thing. Um, and I think that's kind of why some of these basic concepts maybe get lost over time is just, you know, culturally there's, you know, maybe a bit of a bit of an overemphasis or obsession with, you know, having all these certifications and just kind of being on the cutting edge with stuff. Um, so I think like to, to lead off, I think that's just important to mention. I don't think that people that lead with these sorts of things have any, any bad intentions by it. I think they do truly mean the best. Um, I think it's just, you know, maybe a, a misunderstanding or maybe an oversimplification of how the human body works. Um, so I wanted to say that to start and I actually forgot what was the, what was the specific question? Well, like, like how do you, so rather than going that passive route and, and I agree 1000% oh, okay. and, and no offense to anybody, like to, to me, it's like, uh, it, it honestly, like in, in my eyes, it's almost like, uh, uh, issue that I, I personally have just with how people are taught to become a personal trainer is that there's a, a lot of really big gaps and it just feels like something where um, there is like you, you have to, as a coach, you're going to start getting people that have injuries. And so you just, you find like the, the certifications or the courses or, you know, the, the products that are marketed as like solving pain and you, you, you take on the language of that because nobody ever taught you otherwise, you know? And, and so like, if you, if you were to say, okay, we're not going to do that, but we're going to do this and we're going to use load and, and uh, dose and load. Like how, how do you kind of think about that as a non-clinical coach? Yeah. So I actually think that's, that's a really important conversation to have. So, you know, just to kind of like paint the big picture here, I think that, coaches and personal trainers are really well situ situated to manage a lot of this stuff. Um, so the vast majority of, of musculoskeletal aches and pains probably don't represent something really uh, serious from a medical standpoint. I think there are some things to like keep an eye out for and we can certainly talk about that stuff. But you know, if, if you're working with someone who's just kind of developed like a, a minor ache or pain and there wasn't like a traumatic injury or, you know, some of these red flags that we can talk about, um, chances are good. Like it doesn't need to become medicalized. Um, and I think a lot of negative things can happen from that. Um, you know, you kind of start going down this, this rabbit hole of, of kind of the, the medicalization process for things that, you know, it's not necessary for. So I think that coaches and trainers are really well positioned to manage a lot of this stuff, especially if they're working with people already. I think keeping people kind of on track with their meaningful physical activities is one of the best ways that we can kind of foster like regular and consistent participation in physical activity across the lifespan. And, you know, I don't think I need to tell anyone who's listening to this, how important that is. Um, so I think coaches and trainers are really well situated to do this. Um, you know, the goal is to try and minimize some of these falling out points along the way. 
Um, so the, I think, you know, kind of all that said, um, if you have, you know, a client who's developed some, some, you know, minor pain or injury, the most important thing, if, if you're looking to manage this from a load management standpoint, um, first and foremost is to recognize that load management doesn't just mean physical loads. Um, it's taking into account all of the stressors that, that, that person has in their life. You know, the human organism doesn't, uh, doesn't silo out different kinds of stressors and process them separately. Uh, we kind of process everything all together all at once. So, you know, it's not just the physical loads that are going into this human. Uh, there's also all these other things going on in their life. And that's important to recognize kind of as a starting point. Um, and then from there, you want to establish a concrete starting point for the movements, activities, positions that they're not tolerating well. So I think the uh, an easy way to conceptualize this is using the concept of load tolerance um, or tolerable load. Um, so, you know, similar to using something like auto-regulation for load selection, um, load tolerance kind of takes into account all of these myriad factors that contribute to a pain experience. Um, so, um, you know, the easy way to think of it is, you know, you, you have a movement position load activity that you're not tolerating well right now, you know, for whatever reason, it's just surpassing your capacity to tolerate it currently. Um, and if we can, you know, kind of go forward with the assumption that the human organism is adaptive, then we can work on developing capacity and tolerance for those loads. Um, so I think as a starting point, that's, that's kind of where we begin with all this. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, and so I guess, I mean, I, I think the, the way that you just described, like thinking about load as being so much more than, uh, than being just what you're lifting on a bar. Um, because people forget a lot like that when it comes down to it, like exercise is a stress and stress can be good. Stress, stress is something where, you know, the stress on our muscles will help us get stronger, right? Like that's a good thing. Um, but at the exact same time, too much stress in any way, shape or form is, is bad. Um, well, not bad, but like can, can have that like adverse effect. It goes past our, our tolerable levels and then there's pain, then there's whatever it might be. So how do you, how do you figure that out? Right? Like, so you're going to be like, Oh, like your, their shoulder hurts or there's an ache or a pain in the shoulder. And then you're maybe going to test some stuff and then start to ask them about like, how's your sleep been? How's work? Stuff like that. Like how, how do you kind of manage that? Because it, it'll feel probably a little bit random. So it has to be done very conversationally, I would imagine, right? Uh, like how, yeah. how, do you, how do you have that kind of uh, intake of information? Because that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, so I think, you know, for most cases, we can, we can maybe assume that if someone's like a personal trainer or a coach, like they're probably not, I mean, maybe they are, but, you know, uh, they're probably not having a consult with someone like for pain or injury specifically. You know, that probably falls more in the rehab realm. So stuff is probably popping up, like kind of, along the way. Um, so I think just having really good communication with your clients just throughout kind of the whole process is really important. Um, but as far as like assessing goes, I think the easiest place to start is just picking meaningful activities, right? So, you know, if your client is, 
you know, wanting to compete in powerlifting. I use powerlifting as an example a lot because I compete in the sport and the movements are really discreet and it's easy to, to t- like think about and talk about. Um, but if, if this person like wants to compete in powerlifting, um, you know, the squat bench and deadlift are really meaningful activities for them. Um, and so as far as assessment goes, you're selecting the activities that are meaningful and then you're, you're kind of using that as your assessment and your starting point. Um, so, you know, it doesn't need to be anything super complex. You don't need to run someone through the FMS or anything like that, or be looking for, you know, like, you know, scapular dysfunctions or these sorts of things. Like you, you pick the movements of the activities that are meaningful to, for the person, um, you have them perform them. And then, you know, you, you try and look for ways that you can modify or put constraints on these movements so that they become tolerable. Um, you know, so again, if we're talking about building load tolerance or developing capacity. If this person for whatever reason currently doesn't have the capacity to tolerate the loads imparted by this particular movement or position or exercise, um, we're going to put some constraints on it to modify the load being applied by that position movement activity um, to the point where it's tolerable to the person. So we've kind of brought that load down within their capacity uh, to handle. And so that would kind of be where I start. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, Have you, have you ever talked to or uh, seen like Kevin can stuff? So he's, he's my powerlifting coach and he uses like constraints led conjugate. And it's, it's Mm -hmm. the exact same thought process of for him. It's, it's more about getting stronger obviously, but it's okay. Well, like this is happening in your squat, for example, I'm going to put you in positions where you have to correct that, that problem. Right. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I would imagine for you, it's, it's the exact same thought process of, okay, this is where, uh, you know, you're, you're still maybe going to be straining, right? Still not going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be maybe a lighter load, but we're going to squat to a box or we're going to, uh, you know, do a, a front squat or whatever uh, mm-hmm. so that it actually puts you into um, a, a better position and, and actually helps you still, you know, feel like you're straining, feel, feel like you're getting stronger, but um, without experiencing that, that pain, which is really cool. Right. Is that, am I, am I correct on that? I think that's, that's like dead on, um, you know, so to like use a really concrete example for anyone who's listening to this, you know, let's just say someone has like shoulder pain with the bench press. Um, and let's assume that they, you know, normally use like a, you know, like a wide near competition max width uh, grip on the bar. Um, they're experiencing shoulder pain when they, when they bench. So, uh, ways that you can go about, uh, putting constraints on the movement to assess for tolerance. You can, like you said, limit range of motion, use blocks, use pins. Um, you can change the grip or if it was a squat or a deadlift, you could change the stance. Um, you could modify the tempo of the movement, which is going to keep the internal rating of intensity and difficulty high while decreasing the overall total load on the bar. So all of these things are just kind of, um, modifying or adjusting how you're placing load through the system. Um, and you, you just kind of go through and there isn't any specific system for like what kinds of constraints you start with. I think that's just totally individual to the person. Um, you know, I think probably picking the fewest number of constraints possible to get someone to the point where they can tolerate the movement is just an easier place to start. It's, you know, again, not, there's nothing is set in stone with any of this, but, um, that's kind of how I would go about it. So let's say this person has shoulder, shoulder pain with the bench press. Um, 
you know, we might start by just moving their grip into a narrow grip and see if that changes things. Um, and if that doesn't do it, maybe we're, we're going to a pin press or a board press or something like that to limit range of motion. Um, or like alternatively, we can modify the tempo. You know, you've got a three second eccentric with a two second pause on your chest, which is going to limit the load on the bar, but still keep the movement challenging. Um, all of these things, like you're saying, you're still training, you know, you're still putting load through the system. You're still, working on a variation of the activity that's very meaningful to you. Um, and you, you have modified it to the point where it's now tolerable. And so again, assuming the human body is an adaptive system, your body can adapt to this. And then over time you can kind of slowly start taking these constraints away. But I think that the, the point about this keeping someone doing uh, meaningful activities is super important because, you know, again, big picture, you know, we're trying to help people, get to the point where they can participate in exercise their whole life. Um, and, you know, again, like the, the mode of what they're doing probably isn't the most important thing. What's the most important is that they're doing something that they enjoy. Um, and so participation in meaningful activities is what's going to keep people consistent over time. And so I think that's why this is one of the things that makes this a fairly effective approach is that you're keeping people doing something that's meaningful to them which keeps them engaged in the process, makes them feel like they're, I mean, you certainly are working on developing capacity, but then it makes you feel like you're actually still training. You know, you've never gone, um, you've never stopped training and now you're rehabbing again, going back to this continuum of load. It's you're, you're just changing where you're at on the continuum. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And, and I mean, from my own experiences, like I can tell you, it was, it was very interesting for me. Like I, had been someone where I was like, Oh, you know, my shoulders hurt when I bench too much and my hip hurts when I do certain things. So I like torn the labrum or the so as I don't even know, I, I never got it checked out. But, like I knew that it was kind of jacked up and, uh, and then putting myself into constraints and, and finding different ways to move. Uh, it built confidence. I was no longer in pain. Um, and it was, it was amazing. And, uh, and so where does this fit in as far as like risk reduction, right? Because a lot of people like, uh, I remember for me, like the, the moment where Kevin told me, I was like, dude, what should I be doing for warmups? I was like, usually I do like cat cow and I do bird dogs and I do hip rocks and I do all of these different things. And, uh, and he was like, just walk up to the bar and squat. And I was like, oh, what? And he was like, just use an empty bar. And then add load. And then all of a sudden, like a lot of the stuff that had been buggy beast just started to feel better. And it was weird. And like, and I think like people put a lot of focus on like the word prehab, right? They're all like, Oh, well, like we should almost do these like, like rehab drills to prehab stuff when uh, I, I don't know, at least from my own experiences, if that maybe is the right way to do it. Like, is it something where injury risk reduction is really the training itself uh, and not as much a 45 minute warm up um, like I may or yeah. may not have been doing? This, I think, is the, the more difficult conversation to have. I think, as far as injury risk reduction goes, we just, we just don't know a lot. There's, there's a couple, you know, things that we can probably point to that are likely to reduce injury risk over time. Um, 
you know, there's like this, this acute on on chronic workload ratio thing that was like really popular um, for a while. And then more literature started coming out showing like, Hey, it doesn't always have a really strong correlation to injury risk. Um, Yeah. I think we can say with pretty good certainty that um, kind of earlier on in someone's develop development, um, just like physical development, um, having a broader range of, of, like types and modes of exercise and varying types of, you know, uh, just different ways of moving and exercising probably reduces injury risk long-term because you're probably just developing more capacities kind of earlier on. Um, I think from a, like a resistance training standpoint, like if, if, uh, you know, if you're a power lifter or a bodybuilder or a weightlifter or something like that, um, like load management, meaning like not, you know, rapidly ramping up what you're doing in terms of like volume or intensity is probably like a good place to start. But at the same time, there are people that tolerate those, those huge ramps and volume or intensity really well. So it's not something that's set stone either. I think it's just a very, very difficult conversation to have. Now, like as far as warmups go for minimizing injury risk, um, there probably is something to the idea of the warmup itself helping to reduce injury risk. Now, again, we need to, we have to kind of define our terms here. What do we mean by injury? Like, are we talking about like discrete muscle tear injury or are we talking about, um, you know, pain in the absence of, of observable tissue injury? So I think those are different things, but like, as far as a warm up goes, you know, ideally your warm up is preparing you for the task at hand. Um, you know, literally warming up the tissue, um, you know, getting, getting blood flowing to the right places and getting you, you know, uh, like practicing the skill. So I think as far as just long-term development goes, because again, like long-term development is one of the things that maybe we can point to for reducing injury risk over time. Um, having your warm up mimic the task that you're going to be doing or tasks you're going to be doing so that you're, um, like warming up specifically for that task, but then also developing your skill for those tasks is probably just a more time efficient way to go about it. So unless someone has like a really strong attachment to foam rolling or banded mobilizations, that's not something that I'm having people do for movement preparation um, or warming up. You know, I think, you know, if we're going into the gym to do snatches or we're going into the gym to do low bar back squats, we, we should be doing some derivation of that movement as the warm up. Um, because it's going to be very much preparing you for that specific skill and it's going to be practicing the skill. Um, I think that's maybe, maybe kind of the best that we can do as far as injury risk reduction goes kind of session to session, uh, kind of in how we structure our warmups or, you know, again, air quotes, movement prep, um, long-term, you know, uh, load management plays a role, but it's going to be super variable depending on the person. Um, and it's, it's hard to say with any certainty, um, you know, kind of what applies to everyone all at once. Um, and then, uh, I think we can say with some decent certainty early on in someone's development, having a wide variety of, of exercises and activities and movements is going to be important. I think, I think in that's, it's something where I think that's a, a big issue that I've seen with a lot of like gen pop um, is this mentality of, I mean, I, I used to do this all the time. Like 
when I worked in a big gym, you'd go in, you sit down with somebody for like five minutes during this like free console. And then it's like, go like, give them a really good workout. Like that's what your PT manager tells you. And you're like, I'm going to make you puke. I'm going to crush you. And like, that's why people are getting injured is you're just, you're just smashing people with volume because like there's this mentality of harder is better. And, and I think like, I love, I love the thought process being like, it's load management if you're a power lifter, but I think that's true for gen pop is like, it is load management. It is not just smashing them with a workout to like smash them with a workout. So you can feel like you're smart or good. I don't know. I don't know why we do that. So we can feel like we're different, but like, instead it's like, let's, let's actually like really scale up load. Let's really scale up. Um, and some people maybe can tolerate that well, but it's probably better to figure it out over time than figure it out on like days one through seven, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was the first thing that came into my head was like, Oh man, we got to stop smashing people with workouts when we've never trained them before. Cause I mean, yeah, you need all the yeah. crazy banded stuff. If you're just going to crush them in the next 15 minutes, you know? Yeah. So like uh, I was saying before, like this stuff applies to everyone, right? Like the, these concepts apply to all human beings. It doesn't matter if you're a powerlifter division one football player or, you know, someone who's never exercised in your life and you're just trying to get into it for the first time. Um, these low, sorry, these, these concepts do apply. It's like the concept of load management applies. It's very difficult to put specific numbers and measurements on it, but yeah, um, that definitely, I think, you know, regardless of who you are. Um, and I think this, this also speaks to, um, I like to use the, the phrase stacking the deck in your favor. Um, I think that's important, especially if you're getting some, someone into something for the first time or introducing them to a novel task. Um, you want to stack the deck in your favor, meaning there's there's probably isn't much to be gained from going in and, and you know smashing yourself or smashing a client with volume or intensity with a novel movement or type of exercise for two reasons. First, we don't know where their threshold is for tolerating that task prospectively. You know, that's something that we can probably only we can only assess retrospectively after the fact. So we don't know what their threshold is initially. Um, so you don't know how much is going to be more than what what's going to surpass their capacity, right? And then when you have a novel task or activity, um, you haven't been exposed to the stimulus before, your adaptive response to that stimulus is going to be pretty big kind of regardless of what you do. We see this borne out in the resistance training literature all the time on novice lifters. You kind of look at all of the studies that have been done on all of the training protocols in like novice or inexperienced lifters and they all seem to work, right? When you, when you expose someone to a new stimulus or a new task, it doesn't take much to drive adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when you've got like a, a new client coming in or you're introducing someone to a new program or type of exercise, stack the deck in your favor because you don't, you don't know where their capacity is at to start and you don't need to throw a ton of stimulus at someone to drive adaptation up front. So I think those are two, two really important things and a really good point that you made. Um, and unfortunately there's that culture of, you know, wanting to, if you're going to go pay, pay a trainer, right? Like they better put you through your paces. Um, yeah. and I think that's unfortunate cause it kind of, it kind of flies in the face of those two concepts. Yeah. And I think though, like it's where things get a little bit interesting for me is, you know, as, um, as a coach and, uh, as someone who, you know, who has been lucky enough to, um, 
you know, to kind of learn from a lot of these very smart, very amazing people and, and have once again, retroactively or, you know, retrospectively looked at the mistakes that I made, you know, it, it's definitely a, a cultural thing, but you know, for anybody that's, that's listening and they maybe fall into that, into that uh, group of, I feel like I have to put them through their paces. Like the one thing I've seen and I, I've learned it the hard way and I've learned it through a lot of practice is when I tell somebody in the very beginning, like, Hey, it's a lot easier for me to make something harder. It's a lot harder for me to make something easier if we push you too hard. So if the first couple of workouts feel too easy, great. Let me know. Um, but I would rather like scale it up than try, try to scale it back and you're already super sore and stuff like that. And I, I think that's, that's brilliant. And, and for you, like when imagine that you aren't a physical therapist and you don't, you don't have the clinical uh, capacity, if you will, right? Like I'm a trainer, definitely not a physical therapist. Uh, I should not be telling somebody that they have a torn ACL, uh, or telling them how to rehab it. I can probably help them after they've gone and work with somebody like you. Uh, what are some of the red flags? Like, what are some things where I should take off my trainer hat, put on my friend mm -hmm. hat and say, Hey man, this is really like outside of my scope of practice because of X, Y, and Z. I want you to just go talk to a, a physical therapist, get it checked out. Um, and I'll, I'll work with the physical therapist to make sure that there's a, a good, you know, continuation of care. Um, mm -hmm. where does, where does that kind of fit in for you? Yeah. So I think if we, if we think about it, a lot of this stuff probably will, is gonna, is going to sound kind of obvious. Um, but you know, I think things, things that would be signs of overt tissue trauma. So, you know, someone is coming down from a jump and they twist their knee and they feel a pop and a tear and they've got this like, you know, a fairly immediate onset of swelling in the joint and they can't bear weight on the leg. Like that's obvious, right? Like that's, that's not something if you're not a rehab professional that you should be trying to manage on your own. I think it, it bears, bears discussing, um, you know, if you've got like a visible deformity, you know, someone's doing an exercise and they feel a pop or a tear and then like there's a visible deformity in their muscle and there's swelling and bruising and like they can't use the arm or the leg like that's again not something that you should be managing you know that, that shouldn't have to be your responsibility and you're you, know, you should be referring for that um you know when it comes to spinal type pain you know the vast majority of low back pain is non-specific in nature but you know if someone's got like acute onset low back pain with um, like loss of sensation in their limb and loss of, of muscle function in their limb or loss of bowel, bowel bladder control like those are things that you need to be referring out right away um, so i mean i think when we say it out loud it sounds obvious but um, i think it, it it bears discussing those are some of some of the big ones. And again, I think a lot of it's like kind of in your face. Um, and then I think the other thing to, to just recognize is if, if it seems like it doesn't fall into one of those buckets, but you're really unsure, then it's safe to refer. You know, the safe thing to do is to refer at that point. So like you don't see these overt signs of tissue trauma, but for whatever reason, you're just, you're just not sure you're uncertain about it. You know, definitely referring in that case. Um, and then if it, if it seems like it's something that's like kind of mild and there aren't any of these signs of like tissue trauma or injury and you know, you're, you're trying to like take this, this load mm -hmm. management approach and it doesn't seem to be working 
and you, you know, whatever you do, you just can't seem to get things, help this person get things under control, then that'd be another reason to refer as well. Yeah. That, I mean, that's from experience. Like I remember there have been times where uh, I did exactly that. I would, I would try load management. I would try to be like, Hey, just take like, you know, take some time off or, you know, whatever it might be. Like, we'll really like, you know, uh, make sure that uh, we're, we're not going to be doing these things that, that aren't tolerable and, and stuff like that. And there have been times where I'm like, dude, like we try, I tried what I know how to do and it didn't work. And so let's, let's bring in the, the, the big guns, the professionals, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and that's, it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the ethical thing to do. And, and I think it, it builds trust with your clients too, because they say, okay, like, uh, they're not, they don't feel like they have to be frustrated anymore, right? Like it's frustrating when you can't do meaningful activities. And so mm-hmm. when they are seeing you say, Hey, I want you to return to that meaningful activity. You know, you hired a personal trainer, not a physical therapist. Cool. I just so happen to know some physical therapists and, and, you know, I think it's good. That's where like having a good network is, is powerful. I mean, also, when you talk insurance and stuff like that, maybe they would have to go to somebody else, but like, that's where it is very, very important to, mm-hmm. to bring in um, a, a physical therapist, you know? Um, yeah. And, and so I always like to ask final question. I know, I feel like you probably like heard me ask this for a few people, but like, I always like to ask this. It's like the hard question that I always ask at the end. And, uh, and so for me, like, I always like to ask, uh, what's been the biggest surprise? Because it sounds like you've, you've had these kind of moments where like you said you were connecting these dots and you were like figuring some stuff out that almost went against what you had learned. And, and I'm sure the one thing I, I don't even think I, I pointed out, but with a lot of the people that I've talked to and I, I'm always very impressed by the way that they think about things. And, and it's just something where I'm like, man, I, I, I'm so happy I got to talk to them. And I think people are going to learn a lot. It's like you, you almost have accepted and, and tried to be wrong in as many ways as possible. And like Natasha t- talked about that a little bit, like how important it was. And, you know, I thought that was so, it's so interesting to me, like how you've, you've tried to be surprised by how much you didn't know as often as possible. Um, mm-hmm. But what was the biggest one? What was the one that was like paradigm shift uh, uh, for, for you? These are always hard. Uh, human beings are terrible at actually naming the times that they're wrong. Um, there's this great book <laughs> called Being Wrong. I don't know if you've read it, um, but they talk about how in there, like everyone can can admit, oh yeah, I've been wrong before. And then you ask them for an example of when they've been wrong and they literally can't think of it. Like human beings are just mm-hmm. terrible at it. Um, but I was listening to, um, yeah, some of your podcasts and, and this is a question that you ask often. Um, I don't have like a, like an example, like a really big paradigm shift um, for me because it's always been just like kind of slow over time. I think that's, that plays into, or is kind of a result of kind of constantly seeking new information and disconfirming information is you're kind of constantly learning little bits along the way. And so things kind of change slowly over time. Um, But something that I, I guess was challenged on recently and have changed my mind on is, um, the idea of queuing internal versus external queuing. Um, so I just kind of participated in a journal club with clinical athlete recently, and they talked about the, the, the topic was internal versus external queuing. And I've always had, maybe not always, but for a long time, I've had um, a bias towards external queuing um, for a couple different reasons. But, you know, there's a lot of literature out there that 
that shows external queuing to be superior for certain tasks. But there's also research out there that shows that internal queuing is superior for, for other types of tasks. And I started going through this literature and reading some of the reviews um, and kind of digging into this stuff. And it, there, it's not as set in stone as I thought it was. And for a long time, I've always just kind of assumed that, you know, if you can find a way to queue something externally, like that's the best, the, the better way to do it, the superior way to do it. Um, and digging into some of this literature, realizing that just like everything else, we don't have it all figured out. It's context dependent. It's dependent on the individual. At the end of the day, a queue is literally just a means of directing someone's attention towards a specific, you know, uh, realm of their experience. Um, and so that, you know, it doesn't fall into like a specific bucket or of good or bad or right or wrong or optimal or suboptimal um, across the board. It just kind of depends on the person. And there's a ton of conflicting information on that. Um, and that was like just this last week. So um, there's lots of things like along the way, just like that, where, um, you know, I think I've got it kind of figured out and then something or someone prompts me to dig into the literature and this is what I'll do. I'll kind of go down the reference list and pull all the, the sources and just keep reading on it. And then I'll have to change my mind. And this, this happens pretty regularly. And I think uh, that's, that's something that's important is trying to do that on a regular basis. Um, I think it, it kind of prevents you from having these massive paradigm shifts because you're kind of slowly changing your mind about things over time. Um, but I think that's a, uh, responsible way to go about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's funny you say that. Cause I mean, I, I definitely was more of an external queuer. My question though, is like, where do you, and this is, I'm just genuinely curious, where do constraints fit in? Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like constraints are like almost a combination of both, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But I, I don't know. Like, I feel like constraints are internal because you're, you're like, putting somebody into a place where they have to kind of do the right thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But also you might give them some, you know, basic like, all right, you know, like press the floor away or whatever. Yeah. Where does it fit in? Cause I don't really know. So um, we can dichotomize internal and external queuing just based on whether or not the person's attention is directed at their, their body specifically or to the external world. Um, so going off of that, any cue could be internal or external depending on how the person individually interprets it. So like you're just saying there are aspects of like using constraints that could be seen as an internal or an external cue. It, it literally just depends on where the person's attention is directed based on that constraint. And this is something they talk about as I was reading through the literature is, um, you know, it's like when you do a, a placebo controlled trial, you need to like ask the people afterwards, do you think you had the placebo or not? Well, in these queuing studies, you need to ask them act- afterward, what were you focusing on, right? Like in a study where they're comparing internal versus external queuing, they give them an external queue or an internal queue or sometimes a mixed queue, which is kind of what you were mentioning where um, you know, they're saying, here's, here's what we're looking to do with your body segments, which is internal, but then they're saying, and now here's the external cue, push your hips back towards the wall or sorry, push the floor away, something like that. Um, but you need to assess afterwards, what were you focusing on? And sometimes you'll find that, uh, you gave them an internal cue, but they, they, uh, were focusing on something external or you gave them an external cue, but they were focusing on something internal. So this is where there's just, it's, there's uncertainty and we, we can't be certain about any of these things. And it's just context dependent and person dependent. 
And also it's important to just ask. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. it's so yeah. smart. I was thinking about it. I was like, why don't I just, if I tell somebody to press the floor away and then I ask them like, what were you focusing on with that squat? If it gets, if they like squat and it's just beautiful and like yeah. there's no pain, whatever. And I'm like, what were you focusing on? And then they were focusing on like, who knows what? And, and yeah. it was completely different. It's like, just do that every time. I don't care. That was beautiful. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that's like a great rule of thumb. Just ask, right? Like yeah. always just ask. Like that's like right there. <laughs> if you take nothing else away from the podcast, just ask. You can't there's, your, there's, your, there's your quote for social media. Just ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. And then how can people get in touch with you? Because obviously, smart guy, you're talking about some awesome stuff. How can they continue to learn from you? How can they kind of follow along your journey? Because you're always learning. You're always embracing being wrong. Like how, how do people get to continue to, to learn? I appreciate those kind words. Um, I'm mostly active on Instagram um, at Cody Miseraka, which is just my first and last name, period, DPT, at Cody DPT on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. Um, I have a, way, uh, a website for Waypoint, my business, that's linked through my Instagram. Uh, it's also linked. I have a Facebook page for the business and the website's linked through there too. I'm trying to be more active with that. I've, I've put a couple articles out on there and I'm trying to do more of that, but Instagram is the place where I'm most active. Um, so if you're looking to connect with me or want to ask me questions or troll me with something, find me on, find me on Instagram. That's actually what I'm here for. I, I, I actually just follow you to troll you. There, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. This was, I have like so many notes. Uh, this is awesome. Yeah, this is really fun. I, I think it's like, it's so cool to see uh, how I can, as a trainer, apply what you're learning in physical therapy and, and really be able to do it in a way that like uh, meshes well and supports one another. You know, uh, that was, that was great. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. That was a great time. Really good talking.